Jesus and his disciples gathered around a table. Uh, this is a table where Jesus gives himself to us, his body and blood to us. This is a table where he defines those of us who believe in him, where he defines the church, who we should be, and how we should live in the world. And so we're gathered once, around, once again around the table with Jesus this morning. And I'm going to read a part of chapter 15 and then a part of chapter 16 for us. I'm going to begin in verse 18 of John 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And then go to, with me to chapter 16, uh, verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name. He will give it to you until now. You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we come hopeful this morning because we know there is one who pleads for us even now. We know that as we gather and hear the words of Jesus, that Jesus himself is at your throne praying for us. 
and that makes us hopeful for this time. Uh, but we also come a bit baffled. Uh, what we've read is strange and disturbing uh, to us and confusing. And so we come and, and we ask for help. And we pray that as Jesus prays for us, that you would also keep the promise that your spirit would be at work in us as we gather in his name around your word. Would you help us? Would you give us not only clarity about concepts, but, but would you, by the power of your spirit, take what is said here and implant it into our hearts so that it brings forth life in us? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is a strange comforter. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, there is a dark cloud that hangs over these chapters in the Gospel of John. It is the dark cloud of the soon-to-be absence of Jesus. He's going away, he tells his disciples. And so he speaks to the troubled hearts of his disciples, the troubled hearts of his disciples then, and the troubled hearts of his disciples now. But in this text, he speaks to our troubled hearts by increasing our trouble. He matches trouble with trouble, and he he expands it. He makes it worse. And he sets before us this disturbing principle. Love means hate. Love means hate. To be loved by Jesus is to be hated by the world. Now the world in the Gospel of John speaks of the elements of human society that are arrayed in rebellion against, rejection of God and His design for us. So this is not the totality of human culture, but it is a part of every human culture that sin, the rebellion against God, multiplies and becomes a part of the life that we live together as human beings. That's the world. And to be loved by Jesus is to be hated by the world. To abide in Jesus is to face an abiding hostility by some people, communities, and institutions. You see, the trouble is not only that Jesus is absent, but also that we are under attack. Now that attack ranges in intensity for the church in different places and at different times. That attack ranges from overt, violent persecution that many Christians around the world will face today to a more subtle pressure, a more subtle rejection. But the reality is, as Jesus has said, the pressure is always there. There is always a distaste, even a disgust, for what Christians believe and practice. And that raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Let's ask two this morning. Let's ask two questions about this hatred that Jesus promises to us. First of all, why? 
Why is there hatred? And then first, secondly, how? How should we respond to it? First of all, why is there hatred? Prepositions. There is hatred because of prepositions. It, prepositions like of and from lead to this hostility because these prepositions, they speak of origin. They speak of source. They speak of belonging. They answer the questions of how, where, and why we fit. And so the hostility here, it's the hostility of that classic movie scene where the city boy goes to a rural diner and someone comes up to him and with threatening suspicion says, you're not from around here, are you? That's the hostility, and that hostility would make a little bit more sense if Jesus was talking about the relationship of his disciples with the Romans, with the Greeks, with the pagan nations. But that's not his primary focus here. He goes on in in chapter 16 to say to his disciples, you'll be thrown out, not just of the Roman courts, but out of the Jewish synagogue. He says to the disciples, the churches you grew up in will look at you with threatening suspicion and say, you're not from around here, are you? Why? What creates that disconnection? Well, it is their connection to Jesus. It is because to be connected to Jesus is to completely change the object of those prepositions. It is to completely change the answer to the questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? What gives meaning to my life? Jesus changes all of those sources of identity, all of those sources of meaning for those who are connected to him because of where he is from, He changes where we are from. That's why one of the first extended conversations that Jesus has in the Gospel of John is a conversation about birth. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus had all the right prepositions. He was descended from Abraham. He was faithful to Moses. He belonged to the best religious and political societies. But Jesus says to him, what? You must be born again. You have to be born of water and blood, referring to Jesus' own death. You have to be born from above, Nicodemus. You have to be born of the Spirit. Do you hear how offensive that is? Nicodemus, with all of your heritage, with all of your credentials, with all of your accomplishments, your birth is deficient. The sources of your life, the meaning of your life, your identity are useless. Your family your place, your religion, your culture. Illegitimate. You must be born again. 
This is what Jesus is talking about in our text when he talks about how his presence and his message expose sin. He makes people guilty of sin. That is not sin as behavior. He is not saying I make people guilty of the lie that they told yesterday. That is sin as belonging. He's saying, I reveal not just to Nicodemus, but to all people that their birth is deficient. Because they have been born into rebellion against God. And they have been born under the judgment of God. And nothing they can do, nothing you can do, no group to which you can belong can deal with that problem can overcome that deficiency. That's why the religious leaders hated Jesus, because he looked at them with all of their fastidious keeping of the law, all of their glorious heritage, all of their ritual precision, and he says, your birth is still deficient. You cannot overcome the problem of being born into rebellion against God and born under the judgment of God. This summer when the Olympics were on, I watched a little bit of the rugby tournament. I don't know a lot about rugby. I still don't know a lot about rugby. But I did learn one thing about rugby. In rugby games or matches or whatever they call them, there's always something called a sin bin. It's similar to the penalty box in hockey. But it's called a sin bin. And when the commentator said that word, I was shocked. I mean, I use that word every week of my life, the word sin. But to hear it in that context was jarring. It seemed harsh Seem like how a sin bin, man, that is heavy. That's harsh. That's offensive. But that's the offense of Jesus. That's the offense of Jesus. He takes all of us, no matter our moral goodness. No matter our birth heritage, no matter our accomplishments, our resume, and he puts us all, or rather he reveals that we are all in the sin bin. Not as a temporary punishment for breaking the rules, but as a birthright. Born in ignorance of God. Born into the rejection of God. Born into this tragic human condition. And they hated Jesus because of that message. And they'll hate us because we bear the same message. But hear that carefully, church. Hear that carefully, Christian, understand that what produces this hostility is a message of shared need, not moral 
or cultural superiority. What creates this hostility is the message of a shared tragedy. Not being better than the world. Which, if we get this, and it's... I don't know that if I don't know that we have got it because if it if we got it we would be so much more humble. We would have so much more compassion for the world around us. You see the church's role we are not the librarian looking over our glasses going shh. That's not our role. We bear the message that with the world around us, we share this tragic human condition. We too were born with this profound need. And that should create in us a humble posture, a compassionate posture. An empathetic posture. So way too often, the offense of Christianity hasn't been Christianity, it's been Christians. Arrogant, self-righteous, wanting to prove that they are better than. If we're going to be offensive to the world around us, may it be this message of our shared Need before Jesus. But even with that explanation, this is still a disturbing promise that Jesus gives to us. And so let's go on and let's ask a second question. Not only why is there hatred, but how do we respond to it? And I've already begun to hint at that, but we should not respond to this hatred with reciprocal hostility. We should not respond to this hatred with mutual disgust. Oh, the world. Ugh. How could those people be so terrible? No, we should respond to this hostility with joy. We should respond to hatred With joy, did you see how throughout this text is woven not only the promise of hatred, but also the guarantee of sorrow becoming gladness. And this theme allows Jesus to once again talk about birth. He says the joy of a Christian is the joy of labor and delivery. And this imagery, this imagery of birth, like most of the images in the Gospel of John, it has a biblical history to it. It is a, it has long been a part of the biblical storyline. It connects all the way back to Genesis 3, where God says that pain in childbearing is a result of sin. It's the result of the rebellion of Adam and Eve 
of, against God, their rejection of him and his will. And so the pain of childbearing is an image of the curse that sin brought upon the creation. So Jesus is not just using a general analogy here. He is using a theologically rich picture. And he is saying the joy of Christians is the result of the curse being endured and overcome. It is the happiness of a new creation, a new humanity being born. And how does that happen? Verse 21. Jesus says that when a, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because it is her what? It is her hour. Her hour has come. Now, attentive readers of the Gospel of John will notice that word hour. Because that word is what Jesus uses to talk about his own impending The hour of the Gospel of John is the cross. And what happens in that hour? Jesus suffers the sorrow of the curse. Jesus bears the labor pains of birthing a new creation. Birthing A new humanity. And so when his disciples see him. After he has risen from the dead. But is still marked with the scars of his death. When they see him. John 20 verse 20 says. They were glad. It's a weak translation. It should be. They were overjoyed. Because it's the word joy from this text on steroids. (laughs) They were filled with happiness. Because they were seeing a new creation being born. They were seeing a new humanity being born. Through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, that is the joy that no one could take from him. That is the joy that no one can take from us. It is that Jesus not only exposes the deficiency of our birth, but he died and rose to give us a new one. And we as his people, we bear the message not only of offensive need, but of the glorious provision of God. And we should bear that message with a happiness that comes from the new birth. Now, that happiness is complicated. That happiness, it is not pure and it is not yet complete. Because this birth process, it has begun. It began with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it is not yet done. 
is not yet completed. And so we still live with labor pains. Romans 8 says we still live with the labor pains of this new creation. And so we still deal with sorrow and suffering and grief. And to say that Christians are called to be happy is not to say that they are called to pretend. To put on a superficial cheerfulness. And pretend that they do not suffer. That they do not sorrow. No, we should. And in fact, the Spirit Himself groans with these labor pains. But still throughout that, there is a joy that sustains us. The joy of a birth that has begun. And a birth that Jesus will one day we live in kind of a tense, there's a tension to our joyfulness. But, but it's, the, it's the joyful tension of a DJ. Okay, Tradition, I'm talking about traditional DJ, right? In traditional DJing, there are two turntables, yeah? And one turntable is playing the current beat that people are dancing to. While with the other turntable, the DJ sets up the beat they are about to dance to. The gospel, the message about Jesus, gives us a turntable. It gives us two turntables. It gives us a beat. It gives us music that should make us dance now. It is the music of the curse born for us by Jesus. It is the music of the profound truth that we are forgiven, not just of behaviors, but of our heritage of sin. It is the music of the gift of the presence of spirit that, of the spirit that Jesus talks about in the part of chapter 16 that we skipped in our reading. There is music that we are to dance to now, but that is incomplete. And so sometimes we dance with tears. Sometimes we sing with sadness. But we do, all, we do that always sustained by joy because there is a better beat coming. There is a day when Jesus will return and make all things new. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more tears. It is that joyful tension that will sustain us in the face of of hostility. But do you know what else that does? That only that not only sustains us, but it creates for us a sense of possibility for the world. A sense of possibility even for those who hate us. Jesus told Nicodemus, "I came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Our community Bible reading this week should transform the way we read this text. If you're doing community Bible reading with us, you know that we read in the book of Acts about a man named Saul. And Saul hated the gospel. Saul hated the church. It became his life's mission to violently stamp it out. And so in Acts chapter 9, we read on Wednesday, it said that he was breathing out 
threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. But the light and the word of Jesus intervened and transformed his hatred. And Paul became one of the greatest messengers of gospel joy the world has ever known. Do you have that sense of possibility for the world around you? Do you have that sense of possibility for the people around you of what Jesus can do even with those who hate him. See, this joy, it it is something that propels us into the world, not that keeps us from it. It sends us into the world so that the world, so that Tallahassee can hear, can see this joy. The joy of a new birth that Jesus is bringing. Our response to hostility cannot be to huddle. There's another bad Christian tendency that in response to hostility, we circle the wagons and we create the holy huddle. And it's like, we've got our thing over here. We've got our joy over here. We don't care what people think about us, and we're not going to let them take it from us. No. No. The joy of the gospel sends us to become the joy of the world, even if they want to reject us. We end every service with a benediction. And as I have said before, part of the message of the benediction is you can't stay here. You have to go now. You can't stay here. We, we gather to taste joy. We gather to hear and to sing joy, but then we are sent to take that into the world. Even if the world doesn't want to see it. Even if the world doesn't want to hear it. Even if the world responds to us with hatred and hostility, we are still called to be a happy people because of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Jesus is a strange comforter. But he is a strange comforter because he will not let us settle for cheap consolation. He won't let us settle for the cheap lie that everything's just going to always be okay. The cheap lie that you'll never face opposition, that you will never face rejection, that you will never face hostility. No, Jesus wants to draw us to a deeper, to a truer consolation, which is that even when we are hated, we are still loved. The experience of hostility should force us back always into the abiding, steadfast love of Jesus for us. Because there we find 
a contagious joy. Not only for ourselves, but for all the world. Let's pray.